Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. In November of 2008, four decades after the passage of the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964, voters in the United States elected the first black president in the nation's history. It's been a long time coming, but tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. This is an historic election, and I recognize the special significance it has for African Americans and for the special pride that must be theirs tonight. I've always believed Barack Obama's journey to the Oval Office was truly remarkable. The then 47-year-old got his start as a community organizer in Illinois and was a first-term senator when he made the bid for America's highest office. His campaign slogan, Yes, We Can, captured the demand for change in a nation fractured by the 9-11 terror attack and the unending war it unleashed. Yes, We Can became a rallying cry for citizens eager to cast off the despair of the previous eight years. President-elect Obama would replace President George W. Bush, whose legacy included the historically unpopular war in Iraq and massive changes in national security, tax policy, and social security. By the end of Bush's second term in office, the country was bitterly divided and in the throes of a financial recession, complete with the collapse of the housing market, a stock market crash, and a bailout for financial institutions and car companies. The election of the first black president, if just for a moment, turned the nation's attention away from the dire economic circumstances of the country. I see the promised land. I see the promised land. On January 20th, 2009, 37.8 million Americans tuned in to watch the full day of television coverage of President Barack Obama's inauguration. Huddled together in 28-degree weather on Washington, D.C.'s National Mall, 1.8 million more gathered to witness history. People's eyes were glued to their televisions. Vendors sold out of collector's edition t-shirts and paraphernalia. I even took my son out of school to watch it all. Neighborhoods across the U.S. erupted with the sound of fireworks and celebration. The nation's first black chief executive seemed to signal change on the horizon. For many, the moment was a clear indication of progress. For the veterans of the civil rights movement, many of whom tearfully witnessed the swearing-in ceremony. President Obama's election was virtually unimaginable, and many Americans from all walks of life held steadfast to their faith in Obama to deliver transformative change. And no matter whom you voted for, you'd have to agree this is an incredible milestone in the history of this country. A century and a half after... Indeed, it was a special day. But Obama's election, historic and unprecedented as it was, set the stage for profound disappointment. His hopeful message along the campaign trail was perhaps too effective, and unrealistically high expectations would saddle his presidency. The first black president of the United States would lead the nation through eight years of profound hope, frustration, and disappointment. He inspired many to imagine a different America, but many were crestfallen when change did not come. 
I am Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr., and this is History Is Us, Chapter 5, American Madness, The Obama Years. They want a full-on attack on this black president to the point that the lie that he wasn't even born here. They want a full-on attack on immigrants. They want a full-on attack on all these other things. He's willing to give it to them. This was the radicalization of young black people who voted for Obama with the expectation that he would be their president. President Obama's election led some to declare that we had finally turned a corner and put the ugliness of our racist past behind us. Former Secretary of Education William Bennett announced on CNN that Obama's election meant that there were no more excuses, no more claims, he suggested, that the deck had been stacked against certain groups. But we have just, if this turns out to be the case, President Obama, we have just achieved an incredible milestone for which the world needs to have more respect for the United States than it sometimes does. For Bennett and so many more Americans, the election of the first black president meant the absolution of our national sins when it came to race matters. But we have seen in our previous episodes that at every moment when it looked as if the nation was on the brink of substantive change, that we would finally become a multiracial democracy, the reality of racism would rear its ugly head and change would be arrested. Ours is not a linear story. What we have learned is that our story is one of fits and starts, a step forward and two steps backward. No doubt the election of the first black president signaled a shift in American life. Symbolically, the importance of a black man in the White House cannot be overstated. Imagine, my son came of age with a black family in the White House. But the change that many Americans hoped for failed to materialize. Instead, during and after his eight years in office, Americans seem even more so at each other's throat. In this episode, we'll look at how we account for the Obama years and what happened after his presidency. It's easy to forget the context within which Obama ascended into the presidency, taking the United States into an illegal war in Iraq and illegal occupation of Afghanistan, the Hurricane Katrina crisis, and the collapse of the American economy within the context of the global economic crisis in 2008. This is Kianga Yamada-Taylor, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. Professor Taylor is the award-winning author of Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership, and from hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. So that was the context in which there was a broad support for an alternative for the Obama administration. I think that there was particular interest from Black people because of the ways that those three crises had impacted Black America. And I think in combination with Obama's political team's strategic efforts to situate his campaign as a continuation of the civil rights movement, as a social movement, helped to not only make him an attractive candidate in the midst of such crises, but for African-Americans that it represented or it appeared to represent a real break from what had been a, a very troubling past with the Bush administration, the crises of the Clinton administration and policing and mass incarceration. And some important context to remember is the Bush administration, but also the Obama candidacy, very skilled shaping of his campaign in the first place. Professor Taylor highlights the powerful rhetoric that fueled Barack Obama's historic campaign. He announced his intention to run for president on the steps of the old state capitol in Springfield, Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln once served. 
before a crowd of more than 17,000 onlookers. He made it plain, quote, This campaign can't only be about me, he said to the crowd. It must be about us. It must be about what we can do together. And this message of unity, of collective action, of hope and belief in the promise of the American dream would drive civic engagement like never before. It was everyone's job to take up the unfinished business of perfecting our union, Obama asserted. Many heeded his call to action. More than one million people signed up to volunteer for his campaign. By any measure, this was a massive grassroots movement. He was elected president with 365 of 538 electoral college votes. Only 270 are needed to win. But despite its incredible success, his campaign's optimistic Yes We Can slogan ran smack into the realities of who we are as a nation. Yes, we can. But what if we couldn't? I think that sometimes we forget the kind of efforts to explain some of the failures of the Obama administration as the result of our unrealistic expectations. And that whole narrative of unrealistic expectations ignores the craftsmanship that went into how his candidacy had been shaped for the popular imagination in the first place. What was it Rosa set so Martin could march, so Obama could run? And he did nothing to dissuade us from seeing his campaign as the natural inheritance of those social movements. And so that is why the great expectations existed when he came into office. I think for the United States in general, but for Black people in particular, we expect something out of this presidency. We expect a new New Deal. We expect some kind of significant reform after eight years of just rank neoliberal theft, kleptocracy out of the Bush administration. The United States was experiencing one of the most pronounced transitional moments in its history. There seemed to be a collective desire for something different. There was a broader embrace of multiculturalism in some ways. The demographic shifts in some places of the country, the browning of America, was making itself known and felt. Folks were buying into the notion that the diversity of the United States was a source of strength. To be sure, much of the spirit of the times and frenzied embrace of a new model of leadership had to do with the deep dissatisfaction with the Bush administration, the deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. But something quite specific and historically situated, bookended by George W. Bush and Donald Trump, was coming into view. I think that a certain America was taking shape, is taking shape, and which is a more demographically diverse and rich America. This is Claude Clegg. He's the Lyle V. Jones Distinguished Professor of History and African and African American and Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of several important books, including The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. Professor Clegg is an expert in the history of the U.S. presidency, African-American history, and social movements. There's a particular America out there that I think is forward-looking, progressive, is multiracial, is increasingly diverse. And Obama, his, his political genius was to crystallize that into a winning coalition. Of course, there are other kinds of Americas, in addition to one, that never is comfortable with this idea of a Black first family in the White House. As a freshman senator, Obama was just the third Black person elected to the Senate since Reconstruction. By his 2008 election to the presidency, he amassed the most votes of any candidate in American history at the time. Obama had grown accustomed to breaking new political ground. The whole promise of Barack Obama 
it was that he's going to make us feel optimistic about America and optimistic about race. I don't think that he was under the impression that he was going to take the country into some post-racial nirvana or anything like that. But I do think that he was under the impression that he was going to take us into a post-partisan moment. And that in the midst of this economic freefall crisis that we now call the Great Recession and these two wars and everything just going pretty badly when he became elected or he was elected in the midst of, that the Republicans would put aside their ideological commitments and policy differences with the Democrats and everyone would pull from the center and pull us out of this crisis. And he was wrong in that. That is, he did not have a loyal opposition in the Republican Party. He had a party that was bent upon destroying him, even if they had to destroy the country to get to him in terms of opposing, you know, even the basic functioning of government, like raising the debt ceiling and keeping us from falling off a fiscal cliff and having our credit rating lowered and so forth. The America Obama inherited threatened to dash the hopes of his campaign. In true American fashion, a spirited opposition movement gained steam almost immediately. It was called the Tea Party, another example of American backlash. Although the group got its start prior to Obama's presidency, its popularity grew in 2009 following CNBC reporter Rick Santelli's call on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for a tea party in response to what he described as a mortgage bailout for losers. We're thinking of having a Chicago tea party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. The group's name evokes the Boston Tea Party of the 18th century. They purported to champion small government principles. This included goals like limiting the size of the federal government and eliminating tax increases. It was a highly controversial offshoot of the Republican Party. I look at the Tea Party as sort of a rebellion within the Republican Party that eventually is co-opted by the Republican Party and steered into electoral politics. And, you know, you have folks like Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, and Marco Rubio and others who simply co-opt these energies of the Tea Party to their own benefit and just steer them towards, you know, establishment republicanism and Republican orthodoxy. But I see it as an ongoing suspicion of government, of government spending, an attack on the social safety net and the idea that government has a role in people's lives outside of cutting taxes and military spending and that sort of thing. No taxation without representation, right? Well, maybe it wasn't that simple. But also, I I do see it as a reaction to the Obama presidency, not only the policies of the presidency, but this person being in the White House who is not a white man. There's the rub. Race. Lurking in the shadows. Some have referred to the Tea Party as the loss caused by another name, an echo of the brutal betrayal of radical reconstruction. Others have described it as the extreme right contingent in Congress. The Tea Party's 2009 emergence offers us some insight into how quickly an oppositional spirit transformed into an oppositional political group in the wake of Obama's historic election. Perhaps it wasn't entirely about economic anxiety amid the Great Recession after all. Much of the Tea Party's politics was actually driven by racial anxiety, having to do with those demographic shifts in America. It has an undeniable racial tint to it. That is, Obama becomes the poster boy for everything that's going wrong. So he's too liberal, he's too urban, he's too cosmopolitan, he's too big government, he's too much government spending, and he's too untraditional an American president. And then, of course, he's a socialist, he's a fascist, he's a, he wants to be a dictator, and all the other mudslinging. But it certainly has an undeniable racial edge to it. Most of the folks who are out there can claim to be Tea Party folks are a particular demographic. They tend to be sort of middle-aged white men, middle class, and traditional Republicans. The media frenzy around Obama's election was unprecedented. 
and much of the commentary, fascination, fixation even, had to do with race. After Barack Obama was elected, the New York Times headline read, Obama elected president as racial barrier falls. Reporters and correspondents sprinted to analyze voting statistics. Everyone wanted to explain the results of the election. Who voted for Obama? Was there a clear distribution along the lines of race? How about political party affiliation or age? Could the stats prove that America was indeed changing? Had Obama at long last unified the nation, something his hero, Abraham Lincoln, could not do? Here's Professor Taylor again. There's a black story. There's a white story. But I think for some section of white America, and I think this is also part of the history that sometimes gets forgotten, is that Obama was able to make small inroads among white voters, who some of whom had voted Republican, some of whom were independent, skeptical, but again, against the backdrop of the disaster of the Bush years, were willing to give Obama and his program of reform that had been at the core of his candidacy an opportunity. And I think very quickly after Obama is elected, and that we have this kind of concerted commitment to bipartisanship with a Republican Party that is not interested in bipartisanship and figures out very quickly that they're not going to give him anything, that instead of staking claim and fighting for the parts of his agenda that were at the core of his campaign, he backed away from those very quickly in the spirit of bipartisanship and meeting a Republican Party more than halfway when politically they were prepared to give him nothing. And so instantly you have a situation where he is backsliding on campaign promises that allow him to be painted as a typical politician. And then you get the onslaught from the right that not only tries to paint him as a typical politician, but is done so with an air of racial grievance that he is not just not going to do anything, but he's going to be doing things for undeserving Black people while white families are suffering. And so there's a pretty concerted, organized effort at a backlash that is the subtext is racial grievance, And that takes hold very quickly. And so you can see that the support that Obama had garnered from some of these white communities was very fragile and fell apart, really, at the first prodding of it. So that's one part of the story. The second part of the story is that the expectations that African-Americans had in mobilizing in historic numbers to vote for Obama were quickly dashed. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Obama's presidency was rife with contradictions. Many of the same ones that have been at the heart of our nation's story since its inception. Racial divisions intensified behind the shiny rhetoric of a post-racial America. In a way, William Bennett was right. There were no more excuses. More and more Americans became openly racist. What's more, many believed that President Obama had an incredible opportunity and perhaps an obligation to serve and provide support for the black community. He could right some historic wrongs. In every way, 
the public's attention was fixed on the first black president. Would he use his position of power to take a stand? How would he show up for the most vulnerable among us? President Obama would face a range of situations that would put his campaign promises to the test. He'd ask the American public to believe in him. He'd convince them that he had a plan for tackling the economic downturn, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as the healthcare system. He'd renewed hope in the power of the common citizen to affect change. Yes, we can! Yes, we can! The familiar refrain, yes, we can, echoed in the months leading up to his inauguration, and anticipation was high. Just a few weeks prior to Barack Obama's inauguration in Washington, D.C., across the country, a 22-year-old named Oscar Grant boarded a public transit train in Oakland, California. The father of one was headed home from a New Year's celebration when Bay Area Transit police officers accosted him at Fruitvale Station in response to reports of an altercation aboard the train. Multiple officers aggressively detained Grant and several others. Grant was thrown against a concrete wall and kneed in the face. Shortly thereafter, Officer Johannes Messerly shot Grant in his back at point-blank range, puncturing his lung. Witnesses screamed, and cell phone cameras captured the entire incident. You can see 22-year-old Oscar Grant on his knees talking to police. He is pulled onto the ground face down. Then, after what appears to be a struggle, a BART officer puts his knee to Grant's neck and head, and another officer steps back, draws his gun, and fires at once into Grant's back. In the videos, Grant can be heard crying out, You shot me. I got a four-year-old daughter. The other passengers aboard the stop transit car looked on in horror yelling at the officers. Oscar Grant died just seven hours later at a nearby hospital. In Oakland, California, the first hours of the new year, the first minutes of 2009, were filled with rage and heartbreak. And 19 days later, Obama would be sworn in. You have incidents like this throughout the early parts of his presidency. In many ways, we can think of this as a moment that young Black people had anticipated, and this was the reason they voted for Barack Obama. To me, the most striking is the attempts to execute, the state of Georgia to execute Troy Davis. This is when you wanted the first Black president to step in and intervene in what many believed would be the illegal execution of an innocent black man. I know the night that Troy Davis was to be executed, black students from Howard University were marching all over Washington, D.C. They marched to the White House. They marched to the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. And they wanted to hear from their black president that they had just two years earlier had voted for in historic numbers and put into office. And not only did he not speak to them or anyone else, but the next day after Troy Davis had been executed, he sent his white spokesperson, Jay Carney, to basically say that this was a state's rights issue that the president had no jurisdiction over. And that was the end of that. President Obama's silence was deafening, maddening even. The murder of Oscar Grant and the execution of Troy Davis were just the tip of the iceberg. Black death, black mourning, and black suffering washed over the nation. From sea to shining sea, racial terror once again engulfed us all. So this was part of, I think, the radicalization of young black people who voted for Obama with the expectation that he would be their president. And you can subscribe to that or not, and you can say that was unrealistic or not, but that's how people felt. That's why people were dancing in the streets in 2008 when he was elected, for a moment like that. And so that was also part 
of the story. And I think the third smaller part is like young white radicals or those who had become radicals, people who had worked on Obama's campaign, again, believing that, no, he's not a socialist revolutionary. And it was all reminiscent of other moments in our nation's past. First, the nation experiences a moment that suggests that the country is inching closer to becoming a truly multiracial democracy. Then the backlash, the betrayal, sends us reeling backwards, fits and starts, with bodies left in the wake. The list of names of black people brutalized, maimed, and murdered with impunity over the course of Barack Obama's time as head of state is unconscionably long. For years, the U.S. news cycle was an unending and violent nightmare sequence for black people. Dontre Hamilton in Wisconsin, Eric Garner in New York, Michael Brown in Missouri, Tanisha Anderson in Ohio, Tamir Rice in Ohio, Rumaine Brisbane in Arizona, Nooney Norwood in Virginia, Sandra Bland in Texas, Megan Hockaday in California, Betty Jones in Illinois, Corin Gaines in Maryland, Alton Sterling in Louisiana, Natasha McKenna in Virginia. The litany of names goes on and on and on. The bright-eyed hopefulness and pride many felt in the early moments of Barack Obama's first term faded away as quickly as it once captivated voters. For years, the photos and videos that plagued our TV screens and social media feeds made Black Death a normal part of our visual diets. We consumed unspeakable horrors every day. Many turned, fairly or unfairly, to Obama to make sense of what was happening in the streets. Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014, Eric Garner in Staten Island, and just a long line, Tamir Rice in in Ohio and, and so forth, they force Obama's hand. If I know him half as well as I think I may know him as a politician and his political methodology, he would have preferred not to have had to deal with these. There, there's no payoff. If you have an interracial coalition that's mostly based on white voters, you're going to alienate especially some of those white voters. But his hand was forced by events beyond his control. And he's walking, and this is a through line of, of the book. He's, this guy's walking a tightrope the entire time. He's choosing every word carefully. He's vetting every word. He's trying to, if not be all things to all people, he's certainly trying to speak to all sides of, of the issue. And as President Obama is carefully weighing his words and his actions, next comes Baltimore, Maryland, a majority black port town about 50 miles northeast of Washington, D.C., a 1970s mayor dubbed Baltimore Charm City in an attempt to rehabilitate the city's reputation. Baltimore is infamously impoverished. The city's image in popular culture has made it nearly synonymous with crime, drugs, corruption, and urban decline. And like many 21st century American cities, it is embroiled in a struggle over its identity. The residential segregation in Baltimore is among the starkest in the nation. The city's black residents grapple with the realities of neglect and structural abandonment every day. Many maintain a deep distrust of city officials, politicians, and most of all, Baltimore police. On April 12th, 2015, 25-year-old Freddie Gray Jr. was arrested by Baltimore police. 
They handcuffed Gray after a brief pursuit on foot. Gray quickly indicated that he could not breathe and asked for an inhaler. None was provided. There was no probable cause for his arrest. Gray had a knife, but possession of the knife was legal. No crime had been committed. In a panic, Gray began to flail his legs and scream. When officers placed him under an intensified physical restraint known as a leg lace and held him down. When a police van arrived to transport Gray to central booking, he was thrown in the back of the van but not secured with the seatbelt. When the officers made a stop to apply wrist and leg restraints, they threw him head first onto the floor, face down and once again unsecured by a seatbelt. New video shows Freddie Gray minutes after his initial arrest, the last time he was seen publicly and alive. The video is short, but it shows Gray not moving, lying half in, half out of the police van. He died one week later from the spinal cord injuries sustained during his encounter with the police. The coroner determined that his manner of death was indeed a homicide. Baltimore erupted. Protests and riots throughout the city made national headlines as residents sought accountability and answers for Freddie Gray's death. Buildings burned, stores were ransacked, and people filled the streets. There would be no business as usual. The civil unrest continued for weeks. We report from Baltimore, where the governor of Maryland has declared a state of emergency, and the mayor of Baltimore has announced a week-long curfew beginning tomorrow night. These things are happening in so rapid a succession, and it's not just an event, it's an explosion. So Ferguson explodes, Baltimore explodes, and you're the president of the United States, so people are going to look to you for leadership. And again, The whole promise of Obama is that he's going to make us, if not forget about race, then to think positively about it, you know, and his own experience, the sort of upward trajectory of the multiracial guy who comes from Hawaii and is raised by a single parent and, you know, he's this black woman and and they get married and lovely nuclear family, he's a U.S. senator, he gets, you make us, you know, it's a a great story. That's what he wants us to focus on, I think. That's, and I, I think that's the whole promise, the hope and change. But this is crisis after crisis after crisis and a race and all the ugly stuff that's packed into it. Police violence and inequality and almost a kind of a colonialism in Ferguson in which you have this white police force and a white mayor in a city that's primarily black and, you know, just almost a colonial setup. And you're the president. You, you have to deal with this. You have to deal with this, regardless of what the coalition looks like. So. I think in that second term, you see more movement, not nearly enough, on criminal justice reform. You see dissent decrees with places like Ferguson designed to improve policing. He uses his clemency powers a bit more. There are some adjustments around the edges in terms of criminal justice reform. He speaks a bit more candidly about race in some ways. And I think he wanted to, but also it's a political calculation. You know, he's more or less reduced executive orders and Congress is not going to pass anything. Disappointment mounted, and Obama was playing politics. He seemed more attuned to the political consequences of speaking powerfully and poignantly to matters of race and what that might trigger in white Americans than speaking to the moment, to offering the nation an honest reflection on the disease of racism and how it corroded the soul of America. He didn't reach for policy or principle. He worried about alienating white voters. And I was angry. Whatever President Obama might have wanted to do around the issues of race and police violence, the reality that racism still occupies the throne in this nation made the most powerful man in the world cower. Or so it seemed to me. I think that he wanted to do more on race, but I think that 
his calculation is a very practical, he's a very practical man. I think his calculation is that if I go too far on this, we'll see how shaky this progressive liberal coalition that he has is. There was an incident in 2009 in which one of our colleagues, Henry Louis Gates, was accused of breaking into his own home by his neighbor called the police. It involves a Harvard professor, a leading African-American scholar, arrested for breaking into his own home. Police say Henry Louis Gates was disorderly. Gates says the police were guilty of racial profiling. The charges against him have been... I don't know what kind of neighborhood you live in, which your neighbors don't know that you live there. And in broad daylight, if you try to get into your house, they call the police on you. So they called the police on him and he was arrested in broad daylight, did a perp walk and everything. And up until that moment, Obama had a majority of white voters behind him. As soon as he said that the Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts police, that was stupid for them to, and it was stupid for them to arrest this guy at his home when he approved of his identification. That this was my house I was trying to get into, the door was jammed. He said that was stupid, Obama did. I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And from that point to the rest of his presidency, he never had a white majority behind him in terms of support for him. His approval ratings among whites were always below 50%. So that was a lesson learned by him that his support among whites was a fragile support. He said in one of his writings that the store of white guilt in this country has exhausted itself. So you can't play on that. You can't talk about institutional racism and, you know, the problems of inequality. There's not much mileage in that anymore. There's not much mileage in talking about race. That's the lesson that he, he learns from the Henry Louis Gates situation. He's tiptoeing for the rest of the way on the issue of race. You know, some would say it's a missed opportunity. If a black president is not going to talk about race, who is it? The situation is rife with irony. Think about it. To talk about racial inequality or racial injustice only fanned the flames. And perhaps President Obama knew that all along. When he began to speak about the country's relationship to race, even in seemingly neutral ways, his broad support base narrowed. He quickly learned that white American support was rather fickle, and many black folks became jaded in the face of it all. I think that's a reasonable critique. That's a missed opportunity. Others would say that it would have been very limiting for him to continually offer these public seminars about race when there was a lot of other things that had to be done. And again, his constituency or his coalition was primarily not an African-American constituency. It's primarily a white constituency. And if you alienate that, then you don't get reelected. So he's thinking in terms of legacy. And I think I would say that he's genuine in wanting to have done something. But of course, the problem is that you just lost the House in the 2010 midterm. You just lost the Senate in the 2014 midterm. Who's listening? And why should they listen or take you seriously? So that would have been the critique. That is, you should have done this when you all had filibuster-proof control of the government back before 2010. I hear this 2015, and you're finally finding your voice on this. And I think it's a reasonable critique of him. I do think that he is not alone to blame in what happens. I think that the Black Lives Matter is a moment of epiphany for the country. I think it's certainly a pivotal moment in in his term as president. I think that he finds a voice on this, but it's a voice that's not coming from a position of strength. This is a lame duck president's voice in which he can say what he wants to now because it's not going to have policy implications because Republicans are not going to play ball with you anyway. Americans elected their first African-American president in 2008 and then re-elected him in 2012. Obama's administration faced tremendous resistance and hostility in the halls of Congress from the newly formed Tea Party and in the backlash that played out in the streets. It is a pattern of reactionary retrenchment that should be familiar to us all by now. 
While it seemed that President Obama was especially poised to make a difference, more and more Americans grew disenchanted with his administration. But from the disenchantment, the frustration, the racial battle fatigue, and the rage, a grassroots movement flowered. I was curious about why is it that the first really sustained Black movement against racism erupts during the administration of the first African-American president. And, you know, I think that has to do with expectations, but also the inadequacy of not just the response from Obama, but from the Black political class. Here's Professor Taylor again. Not only is this the administration of the first Black president, we have a Black attorney general. There are more African-Americans in Congress at that particular time during Obama's administration than any other point in American history. In some of these cities, most pronounced because of the events that took place there in Baltimore, you have a Black political apparatus with a Black mayor, Black police chief, half of the city council is African-American. And so this was the culmination, in some ways, of a central political strategy that comes out of the 1960s, community control. Here you have African-Americans in the most powerful positions, both on a federal level, on a state level, and on a local level. And look at what is happening to young, ordinary African-Americans. We have state officials who say that there's nothing that they can do. And so I think that for Obama in particular, it was especially revealing in terms of the impotence in many ways of these elected officials to really change the everyday circumstances for African-Americans. Because on the one hand, Obama reached out to Black activists, in some ways had an open invitation to people to come to the White House, to sit around the table. He created a federal commission, put activists on this commission, created the impression that people would have a say in what reform would look like, gave them roles and positions to implement these things, and very little changed. All the usual signposts were there. The Democratic National Convention passed a resolution in support of the movement in 2015. Politicians introduced criminal justice reform legislation and drafted new policy agendas that were more aligned with the demands of protesters, town halls with politicians on the campaign trail, and elected officials alike convened to discuss racial justice and policing reform. Politicians made every political gesture and virtue signal possible. When an opportunity arose in February of 2016 for Black leaders to meet at the White House to discuss civil rights in the 21st century, it was no surprise that Black Lives Matter had representatives in the room. They were there alongside people from the National Action Network, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and even Representative John Lewis of Georgia. The question, after the heavily publicized gathering at the White House in 2016, lingered. What was Obama doing to meet the needs of these activists? How would the president guide the nation in the wake of another spate of racial terror? The George Zimmerman trial for the murder of Trayvon Martin had concluded. Hundreds of thousands had taken to the streets following the brutal murder of Michael Brown. And a white supremacist gunned down nine black people in the middle of their Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina. The public was bitterly divided. Some were shell-shocked. The horrors continued. The reports came out that substantiated what people already knew about racism and policing. You know, the main reforms during this first iteration of Black Lives Matter were body cameras to record what police were doing. And again, changing some of the rules and regulations. But this had very little tangible impact. And I think for Black organizers and activists and those who were sympathetic to the movement, this was a telling moment 
and that this was a moment of some level of realization about the inability for our political systems, elected officials to really change the circumstances of ordinary Black people. If we look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s, when those young Black people with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party go to Atlantic City in 1964, believing that they will be seated as delegates at the Democratic National Convention, having all the faith in the world that the political system will actually play a role in freeing them. And they don't. And the liberals are defending the status quo. That's when people become revolutionaries. That's when people decide that, no, the usual channels, the normal channels of change don't work for us. And so we need a different set of solutions. People write that as, oh, you're unrealistic. What is unrealistic is thinking that continuing to do the same things in the same ways that they have always been done will produce a different result when they haven't. And that's just in the course of these people's lifetime. History doesn't repeat itself. History is cumulative. And so when you have the kinds of accumulation of disappointment, of the belief that our system is rigged and that it doesn't work for regular people, that it opens up the space for different kinds of explanations for why there is inequality, for why things aren't fair, for how things can change. And I think that part of the problem is that we have had a Democratic Party that has in some ways articulated these disappointments of ordinary people, but without a real tangible strategy for changing them. And I don't think it's because they all don't care, that it's poor messaging, that there's some kind of ideological disconnect in and of itself. As the 2016 presidential election neared, the public was keenly aware that the Obama years were coming to a close. Dashed hopes and collective disappointment in the final moments of the Obama presidency laid the groundwork for a vastly different political landscape in the years to come. Obama's successes and failures, the political shifts and changes that characterized his presidency, were all preludes for what was to come. The 2016 election was another historic one. Hillary Clinton emerged as the Democratic Party's nominee and Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. The two candidates hit the campaign trail hard, making spirited attempts to capture the support of voters across the nation. For months, the nominees threw jabs at one another. Donald Trump ran a racist and xenophobic campaign. He was mired in sexual assault allegations and had no political experience to speak of. Hillary Clinton championed an expansion of several Obama-era policies, attempting to appeal to her liberal base. I still longed for substantive change and naively believed that the nation would not elect the likes of someone like Donald Trump. I was so terribly wrong. Debates were tense and unproductive. The multi-million dollar political ads that dominated airwaves for months ran incendiary attacks 24-7. The campaign underscored that the fight over the soul of the nation would be a bitter one. Democrats tried to imagine what the party's strategy would be for overcoming the political malaise attendant to eight years with the lame duck president. We have an idea of, in the popular imagination, of who the base of the Democratic Party is. And I think to some extent that has been true. Black people, working class people, Latinx people. But you also have a party that is constantly vying to pick off what it believes 
should also be part of its base, which is the kind of middle-class suburbanite members of the professional class. And these are two constituencies or two different kinds of constituencies that want different things. And so it's hard to sell tax cuts and small government to one group and spending programs and investment to another. It creates a dilemma for the party that isn't just about, well, I'm going to get on the road for the next year so people understand really what I'm doing. And so I think that the inability to really put forward solutions to the real problems that people are facing has meant that the field is opened up for different kinds of explanations for why these problems exist and different solutions. And so Trump offered a vision of what the problem was and what he intended to do about it. And you didn't have to agree about it. But I remember distinctly, I live in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania has been a swing state. And during the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton was sending out mailers and running commercials. And the commercial that she ran over and over again was basically a small child listening in the background to horrible speeches by Donald Trump. And the commercial is about who do you want as a role model for your daughter? Trump's commercials were about layoffs in the coal industry, the expense of everyday life, and that the Democrats had basically given all the money away to people in Philadelphia. We know what that means. And that he was going to come and fight for the people who were outside of Philadelphia. Well, that won. People didn't care about if your daughter hears bad language from the president of the United States. People wanted to know about what are you going to do about our jobs? What are you going to do about the quality of our lives? And so I think that there's a fight and a battle for ideas. Americans wanted substantive change. They struggled to keep their heads above water, to keep food on the table, a roof over their heads, to imagine a better future for their children. They worked hard and played by the rules and watched the rich get richer while they struggled just to make ends meet. And many sought to blame others for the fact that they were losing ground. This isn't new. Our history is replete with examples of American populism steeped in xenophobia and racism. Remember George Wallace? Trumpism bears a family resemblance. It takes the truths of suffering and baptizes them in hatred and grievance. Trump is a pure distillation of what was going on in the Republican Party for much of my lifetime. He takes the Southern strategy that Richard Nixon used to appeal to conservative whites who were on the outs with the Democratic Party once it embraced the civil rights movement in the 1960s. This is Claude Clegg again. He takes the dog whistle that the Republicans use in regard to busting a firm of action, welfare queens and so forth. And he puts the whistle aside, gets a bullhorn and says, we're going to keep the Mexicans out. We're going to build a wall. We're going to keep the Muslims out. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. And these black folks in these urban areas, we're going to make sure they're not voting 15 or 20 times and so forth. We're going to give them a good dose of, of voter suppression. He just gives the pure distillation of what Republicans have been saying about immigration, about race, and about a lot of things for years and years. So, again, he just doesn't follow this guy and just seize control of this party by the throat. No, that was in the making. Again, if he has a political genius about him, he knows that there's an audience, roughly by one half of our countrymen and women, who are willing to hear this unfiltered and want to hear it unfiltered. They don't want the dog whistle anymore. They are ready for the bullhorn and ready for it to be unfiltered, even from the likes of a vessel such as him. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. The guy that has no political experience, never held elective office, all this economic damage of bankruptcies and failed business enterprises, and three or four marriages. We're willing to have him as the vessel if he gives it to us unfiltered. And he understands what they want unfiltered. They want a full-on attack on this Black president to the point that, you know, to say that the lie that he wasn't even born here, 
They want a full-on attack on immigrants. They want a full-on attack on Muslims. They want a full-on attack on all these other things. And he's willing to give it to them. In many ways, the events of the election of 2016 reveal something about where we are and who we are as a nation. Every four years, voters reach for leadership and stories that validate the experiences they had under the previous administration. Sometimes, that looks like 2008, a longing for hope and change. Other times, it looks like retaliation or retribution for years of disillusionment and pent-up anger. And January 6th comes out of that. It is an unfiltered, unapologetic attack on the American constitutional system of government. And just unfiltered. So January 6th is just a sort of culmination of this willingness to push boundaries, to break the system, to get rid of the guardrails and so forth, with the assumption that roughly half of the American people will think that this is okay. After Obama, a Trump is possible. We've seen this movie in other countries. If you need to break the system in order to forestall some sort of reckoning, there are people who would rather see it all burn than to live in a world that they don't think they'll be able to control. We saw it January 6th. We've experienced it with Trumpism. We know that Trump is, in some ways, an avatar for a much more complex set of dynamics that have deep historical roots in this country. He reveals the rot at the heart of the republic. There is a fight and a battle over the direction that this country is going to go. There is a fight and a battle over how we understand what the problems are. Is democracy on life support in this country? Are we in trouble? Yes. When you see books are being banned, this whole nonsense about critical race theory and how we teach American history, the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, the Democratic Party has a serious problem that I don't know if it will be able to overcome by the 2022 midterm elections, which then threatens to throw the Congress back to the Republicans, which then means nothing will happen for another two years, which then sets up 81-year-old Joe Biden for a very, very difficult political contest. And so if we are then looking at a Republican presidency and a Republican Congress, a Republican Party that has been completely radicalized in terms of its open support for white supremacy, its open support for the suppression of democratic rights in the U.S., then we have an enormous problem. That leaves us in a very vulnerable position, simply waiting or relying upon elected officials to solve these problems. There is a disconnect between who our elected representatives are and who the mass majority is, and they only seem to be able to hear us when we are pressing our case in the streets. But it can't just be demonstrations. It has to manifest itself in terms of politics and organization as well. And that's the challenge right now. The nation stands on the precipice. Our democracy is at stake as illiberal forces gather and threaten the very foundations of this fragile experiment. We saw those forces clearly on January 6th as Americans claiming to be patriots storm the Capitol. We see them in the relentless assault on the most precious ideals of this republic. There are those, and we must admit this, there are those among us who resolutely reject the idea of a multiracial democracy, and they seem willing to destroy the country on behalf of their vision of who we must be. We are in a fight for the very soul of America. It is an old battle, a fight since our beginnings. And we have to decide and choose who we are going to be. That fight and that choice must happen close to the ground in small towns and big cities across this nation. John Dewey, the American philosopher, once said, 
that the best solution for the ills of democracy is more democracy. I love that. That involves each of us taking up the responsibility for saving this country from itself, of taking up the responsibility of imagining it anew. We know how we arrived at this fork in the road. We know this ugliness intimately, and we must now face it and put it aside. In our last episode, we will find resources for hope and for the armor necessary for the battles ahead. We talk with, among others, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter and Senator Cory Booker as we work for a new America as we begin again. History Is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran and John Meacham, narrated by me, Dr. Eddie Esglaw Jr., and written by Shelby Sinclair and me, directed by Paige Heimson, production assistance by Terrence Malengar, editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz, production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mutt. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. Research by Shelby Sinclair, and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leo. Thank you for listening to Chapter 5 of History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals, and John Meacham Studio. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.